Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering under-the-radar cases and high-profile cases from around the country every week. We are recording this podcast on July 22nd of 2020. I'm Anna Garcia, and our guest this week is criminal defense attorney Mike Cavaluzzi, who's been on the program before. Mike, welcome back. You're growing a beard. <laughs> Good to be here. Yeah, this is my COVID beard. I've been isolating since March, just like everybody else. Have you been able to go into court at all, or are your cases being heard? Well, the, uh, the criminal courts are essential businesses, basically. So I'm an essential worker. So on serious felonies, where the clients are in custody, or even sometimes when they're not, I have been going into court. Otherwise, all of my appearances are done remotely and cases are being continued into the fall and beyond. Such a delay in justice that we are seeing now. It's just going to create a massive backlog, you know. Well, it's also an interesting intersection right now because the criminal justice system has been uh, sort of forced to undergo some changes at a time when so much of the public is um, crying out for real change. So this might actually end up being a perfect dovetail between the crisis that has forced some change and the the, uh, trends right now in criminal justice that are moving toward real change. Less custody, more rehabilitation, which courts are looking at more closely now in order to keep people out of the uh, prison population. Well, we've got two outrageous murder cases this week where the victims were either rich or powerful. It's a very unusual week in crime. So we've got two cases. One, the CEO of a tech startup is found in his luxury New York condo, his body chopped up, head decapitated, and his personal assistant is accused of killing him. But first, the husband of a federal judge was wounded and their son was killed after a man dressed as a FedEx delivery guy shot them both. This happened on Sunday, July 19th. A man dressed as the FedEx delivery guy rings the doorbell 
and he is at the house of 51-year-old federal judge Esther Salas. Rings the doorbell, son opens the door, shoots him, then shoots the father who is standing behind and nearby, but the wife, the judge, was somewhere else apparently in the basement. She was not hurt. So Esther's son, 20-year-old Daniel Andral, he's the one who opened the door in their New Brunswick home. He died instantly. Daniel's father, Esther's husband, 63-year-old Mark Andral, who is a prominent criminal defense attorney in New Jersey, was wounded, taken to the hospital. We understand that he is stable. He sustained several gunshot wounds. What a crime scene, Mike. Unbelievable. So the key is going to be here who did this, and it didn't take very long to figure this one out. It was an attorney, an attorney who had been in the judge's court, another New Jersey attorney who presumably not only knew the judge because he had been in her court, but would have known her husband, right? I mean, I, I, you're an yeah. attorney. You probably know everybody that you work with. Well, not everybody, but we do know a lot of people in the communities that we work in. Now, I think we have to remember that the shooter here was a civil attorney probably fancied himself a, a kind of civil rights attorney, though not one that we would normally think of as civil rights because he was focused on men's rights. Uh, and no, people don't normally think of men as being a, a, a vulnerable community whose rights need to be protected uh, versus a criminal defense lawyer. So sometimes when there are these two sort of separate insular types of law, the lawyers might not know each other, but certainly he knew the judge and knew her quite well, had written about her. Right. So at the time, investigators were trying to figure out whether it really was a real FedEx driver who had gone berserk or, or yeah. had, you know, some grudge against this family. But it really didn't take long. The minute um, police started investigating um, people who had either written or said anything derogatory or threatening towards the judge, ding, 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 an attorney popped. And that would be Roy Den. Hollander, a 72-year-old self-described anti-feminist, called himself a hater of women, and I don't think that's disputed at all when you read the crap this guy wrote. And he had been, as we said, had a case in Judge Salas's court. Hollander was found dead in the Catskills, which is kind of like n the northern part of New York State, so out of the city, if you will about 130 miles from the crime scene. He died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound, according to the FBI. In his car was a package addressed to the judge. Remember, he was disguised as a FedEx driver. Yeah. And he had written the most disparaging things about Judge Salas online. This is what he wrote. He said that she was, quote, a lazy and incompetent Latina judge appointed by Obama. He said that she used her Hispanic, her Hispanic heritage to get ahead. And she actually is the first Latina to serve as a federal judge in the state of New Jersey. So she made some history. They, they found like 2,000 pages of his rants and his writings. And in those writings, he criticized Salas's life story of being abandoned by her father and raised by a poor mother. He wrote, quote, 
the usual effort to blame a man and turn someone into Supergirl. Now, I'm only sharing the um, the gentler things that he said about her and other women because he really was um, quite nasty in, in the things that he wrote about people. So what do you make of this, Mike? Well, this obviously is not about the who did it, and it's not even really about the why they did it, okay? Obviously, Hollander is the person who did it, and the why is out of a, um, unexplained hatred of women. To me, this is more about the profile of the person who did it and more clearly understanding his history, who he was, and the kind of circumstances that create a person like Dan Hollander um, that make them that angry, that fixated on uh, revenge because of a grievance. Because part of what's really interesting about the case is that the case that Hollander had in front of Judge Solace was one involving a, uh, the, the military system and whether or not women can sign up for that system in the same way that selective service works for men. It was about she, the draft. He, he yes, was arguing, was draft. He was arguing exactly right. that the draft and, only drafts men, not women. Yes. And I believe that he was representing women in that litigation. And Judge Salas ruled in his favor on a number of issues in that litigation. And that case was still pending in her court when, when, uh, uh, when Hollander attacked her son and husband. And so it's not like he could point to some specific circumstance where she dismissed the case against him. So this really comes from an overall hatred and hostility toward women and um, from sort of a culture of, of grievance by men that we're existing in right now. And to me, that's the, the interesting part of this case, is exploring who Dan Hollister was, his history, and what led him to, um, to this kind of horrific behavior. I think we can all agree that people can have various points of view. They can argue them. They can debate them. They can file lawsuits. They can maybe change things that we don't all agree on, on matters. The difference is when something becomes an obsession, when it fuels hate, and then you act upon this, this festering within you. And, and that's where he yeah. is different from, let's say, another crusader who you may very well agree or disagree with. Yeah. But, but there was an anger and a viciousness to him that went beyond a difference of opinion, if you will, an interpretation of, on whether laws are fair or not fair to men. So he called himself, Mike, an anti-feminist lawyer. Many of his lawsuits were all, um, he, he filed lawsuits against governments like he did with the military, as you just mentioned, against schools. And the issue always was the same, that women were given preferential treatment at the expense of men's rights. Now, I mean, he, he filed lawsuits against nightclubs for having ladies night. I think among his damages were that a nightclub forced him to spend $350 for bottle service <laughs> while letting women come in for free. So, I mean, this is a person. And again, you know, it, what's interesting about it is, is how we explore extremism. Because extremism really does come from this psychological insecurity. This place of feeling devalued, feeling unimportant, this place of bitterness, resentment, anger at a world that is changing in front of you 
and somehow seems like it's treating you unfairly. And that's, it's that extremism that I'm really interested in is how did he get, get there? Because his views, you're right, are extraordinarily extreme. And the lawsuits range from issues that are perhaps misogynistic, but maybe have some degree of legitimacy all the way to these suing nightclubs for ladies night. I mean, they just ran the gamut from some legitimate causes to really illegitimate causes. And he has a really pristine legal history before uh, joining, I believe, this like national coalition against women or national coalition of men. So there is some history there of, of what was at one time probably a very competent lawyer who then became um, completely sidetracked, motivated, and obsessed with these extreme views against women. He attended Columbia University, and one of his lawsuits was against Columbia yeah. University because he had problems with uh, studies have, having to do with issues of black women. So he sued the university. What's interesting is he got a lot of media attention because his... His lawsuits were, I'm not even going to use the term outrageous. They, they were, um, you know, he was challenging the system, right? The system yeah. that keeps changing our lives and our system and our rules constantly evolve. And he was challenging that. So they were certainly high profile. They got a lot of media attention. And, and I have to say that I, I'm wondering if all of that media attention, because uh, I, I will not defend the media. I will actually point the finger at them, whether they contributed in, in helping to create or sustain this monster. Because yeah. he got, I'm not saying that he shouldn't have gotten attention for the lawsuits, but I wonder if that fed his monster. Because for a while, he was a legal commentator on Eyewitness News in New York. That's a TV station, a local news station there. He made appearances on Fox News on Comedy Central, again, because of these high-profile lawsuits. Now, Comedy Central, they went along with the joke, right? Ha, ha, ha. Oh, you know what? Ha, ha, ha. You can't find their videos now. They've taken them down um, on the parodies that they did with this guy, which, yeah. again, there we go. I mean, these are all components of this diseased man with a diseased brain. Um, but there was one interview I saw that I found fascinating. It was with Neil Cavuto, who is the business anchor at Fox News. Yeah. Very respected man. And this was about the Columbia University lawsuit. So here he is. This is live television. And Hollander is explaining his lawsuit, but he's being really like rude about it. Because Neil is just asking questions about, okay, well, what's the problem with the black women's studies? And he's like, well, what man is going to benefit from that stuff? You know, <clears throat> he finally said something really horrendous like, um, because programs like this let women walk all over men in their stilettos. And Neil Cavuto said to him, wait, 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 you sound like you have a problem. And then he continued. And then Cavuto said to him, you know what? You're, you're angry. And he cut the interview. And I give him a lot of credit for saying, buddy, there's something wrong with you. You're, you're off target here. We are no longer having a civilized debate over the issue of whether men have lost some of their rights. Den Hollander does not exist in a vacuum. He's not an isolated example of a man who hates women. He is an, an example of, I think, he's the extreme example of it, but a grievance among a lot of men who see the diversity in the world right now and the opportunities for so many diverse people as somehow being an accession of their own rights, an attack on their own rights. 
And he is the worst example of that. Um, but also not necessarily, he's an outlier, but not, not necessarily uh, a, a completely unique figure. Yes, absolutely. And again, you can have those discussions and they can be yeah. vigorous and, and disagreements, but there was something off about this guy. I mean, it, it, and, the, and the flags were there, Mike. Like, for example, um, the FBI found um, a draft of what they believed to be his memoir. It was titled <laughs> Stupid Friggin' Fool. Oh, yeah. And dedicated to his mother, uh, saying, like, you know, may she rot in hell or something like that. So this there you is go. a person who clearly hated, hated women. And it had become, probably had been festering in him for years and had now finally exploded. And you have to also wonder, and I always wonder this about people who engage in this kind of extreme conduct, is how do the world circumstances contribute to that? This health crisis, you know, has isolated so many people, has maybe allowed people who are mentally fragile, and it sounds like Den Hollander is one of those people, who already sort of have this toxic mix of anger, resentment, bitterness, grievance, feelings that they've been treated unfairly, and then are now even further isolated and separated from the world. And you wonder if that didn't contribute to that sort of anger, you know, just completely spilling over and leading to these extraordinarily, extraordinarily uh, horrific uh, circumstances. Well, there seems to be an inciting incident here um, because he was recently diagnosed with melanoma cancer. This happened about two years ago. Now, so has that been verified? The cancer he wrote about terminal cancer. I was curious whether it was verified, whether medical records support that, or whether that doesn't become another example of him uh, of his grievances or or his own self pity. I don't know the answer to that, Mike, because these are based on his own writings, yeah. so we can only take it at face value. Clearly, everything else he wrote that was hateful seemed to reflect how he really felt, um, so we cannot independently confirm whether he had cancer, but he wrote, death's hand is on my left shoulder, nothing in this life matters anymore. The only problem with a life lived too long under feminazi, feminazi rule, is that a man ends up with so many enemies, he can't even the score with all of them. So. So there you are. You have a person who's incredibly embittered, who has sort of focused all of his anger and desperation and feelings of hopelessness on first a, uh, a group of people, women, all women, even his mother, his ex-wife, and then more narrowly focuses it, unfortunately, on Judge Solace and her family. What is interesting is that there is a recent case in California that predates this murderous attack, and there, there's an investigation now to figure out if he's connected. Okay, so a man named Mark Angelucci, he was an attorney, here in California. He also was a colleague of Hollanders because they they both worked towards the same kind of cases. They they supported either whether you look at it as men's rights or anti-women's rights, however you want to 
phrase that. So he was killed in his home in Crestline, California on July 11th. Get this, allegedly by a man wearing a FedEx uniform. Yeah. Um, and he was also, I think they were both members of the National Coalition for Men, which yes. of course is engaged in a, a lot of, again, these sort of misogynistic uh, practices. And uh, it does sound eerily similar and makes you wonder if it wasn't, if they're not connected. Exactly. So the FBI is now looking to see if whether the same gun that was used in Judge Salas's case is the same gun that that killed attorney Mark Angelucci in California. They um, the Daily Beast is reporting that. Hollander was in California at the time of Angelucci's murder. We don't have confirmation on that, but. The authorities have confirmed that Mark Angelucci's name was written on documents that were found in Hollander's car at the scene of where he killed himself. (laughs) As a defense attorney, I should never say that, but it it does sound like there's some real evidence building up to show that it was Dan Hollander. I mean, the fact, if if it does bear out that he was in the state of California, and that Angelucci's name appears in his writings, that feels like a, a pretty significant connection to the crime. But here's what I don't get. See, I, I think this case is slightly different. They were supposedly on the same team, on the same side of the law, on the same side of these issues. But apparently there was a lot of jealousy. Hollander was very jealous of Angelucci, who took on the same kind of cases, but apparently in Hollander's brain, Angelucci was more successful. He may have been, and he may have also been successful because he wasn't obsessed and crazy, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And look, these minds that become obsessed and fixated on grievance and um, revenge uh, often do not solely focus on, you know, say the main group that they hate. They easily, easily can be transferred the resentment, the anger, the need for revenge can easily be transferred to colleagues or people that are even from perceptibly on their, on their side. Yeah, that's, that's the weird part. Like, you know, I, I have no idea. This is just my gut. He may have hated women, but he certainly, in these two cases, took his anger, his violence out on the men, not the women. That is true. That is true. Everybody that who's dead here. That's right. Is a man. That's right. Now, it's possible that in Judge Salas's case, that if he wanted to really hurt her, the most hurtful thing that you could do is to kill your only child. That is an unspeakable tragedy. And it is the worst thing that he could do yeah. uh, to her and to her husband. I mean, I'm sure either one of them would have laid their lives on the ground for their 19 year old son. So that is incredibly tragic but you are right that it was uh men that were killed and obviously lives that have been destroyed judge salas and her husband but it doesn't seem like it would have taken much if he really wanted to for hollander to have killed judge salas and maybe causing her maximum pain uh i hate to say this but gave him some sort of perverse pleasure yeah it's 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 very strange i mean it's repugnant And there's not much else we can tell you about Hollander. I mean, clearly his writings, his rantings, I think, tell the greatest story. 
you know, that, and he's also, he was fighting cancer. He apparently also had all sorts of financial problems, but this is going, you know, back a ways. Um, he certainly didn't appear to make a lot of money off of these high profile cases that he was working on. He apparently filed for bankruptcy in 2011, citing more than $120,000 in credit card debt. Um, you know, he claimed that he had very little money, that he only made $300 a month as an attorney, and that the bulk of his income was more than $700 from Social Security. Yeah, so I mean, to me, this also then becomes kind of another piece of this puzzle, this idea that he is um, kind of surrounded by failure, by his own ineptitude. And I think often what this causes, as you see yourself spiraling down and you're, and he's not getting sort of the, uh, uh, sort of the, the feedback that maybe he's used to of being a competent, good lawyer, having success, that the more he fails, the more that he fixates and uh, blames other people for it. And here, obviously women and perhaps this lawyer that he perceived, you know, Mark Angelucci to be more successful than him. And so you just focused your hatred and anger and all of your failure on those people as being the reason. And then you end up with this kind of uh, catastrophe and, uh, and really horrible, horrible crimes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and judge Salas was, um, you know, she was the first Latina, as, as we said, uh, on the federal judge in the state of New Jersey, but um, she also had some very high-profile cases yeah. herself. Uh, last week, in fact, she was just handed a case involving Deutsche Bank investors, and they had filed a lawsuit against the company claiming that the company made false and misleading statements about their anti-money, um, excuse me, anti-money laundering policies and how effective they were, and this was all connected into Deutsche Bank was holding the money that Jeffrey Epstein, our convicted sex offender who killed himself in a Manhattan jail, um, awaiting trial on, on um, more accusations. Uh, so, you know, this, of course, begs the question when the conspiracy theory people are out there, it's like, oh, there you go. There's a Jeffrey Epstein connection to this, which means there's going to be a connection to all sorts of nefarious and then deep web. And then let's toss Russia in here. And I'm yeah, not trying well, I mean, to get immediately. Off. I mean, within hours of uh, the reporting on Judge Salas's son's death and her husband's shooting, um, immediately that connection to Jeffrey Epstein was all over the internet. And even though right now it seems fairly clear that there is no connection between Epstein and these horrific crimes, uh, you're right. All of a sudden, I bet we start reading in the conspiracy corners of the, of the web that there is some sort of conspiracy here. Other cases, I mean, she also had, you know, gang members. Uh, I mean, just everything you could think of. Uh, she had some very huge, serious cases. And one of the cases that garnered her the most attention was the financial fraud case involving a husband and wife from the Real Housewives of New Jersey. Uh, that would be Teresa and Joe Giudice. Now, Salas sentenced them both to prison for their crimes of... Um, filing bankruptcy fraud and tax evasion. But here's where Judge Salas showed some compassion. 
she staggered the sentences of the husband and wife so because they have children so one parent could always be home while the other one was in prison now you could also make the argument geez would you do that for any other couple unless they were on tv I, I think often judges will do that, especially in federal cases. I actually don't know that that was exception, uh, the exception as opposed to the rule to make sure that there's a parent there to care for these kids. But I must say all these Italian names, Andalucci, Giudice, I'm glad that I'm here to provide <laughs> a, different, a, a sort of non-criminal face to the Italian community. <laughs> and we do, we do appreciate that, Mike Cavaluzzi. <laughs> Um, I, I do um, want to talk a little bit about the judge's background, just so everyone can understand who she is um, and a little bit more about her family, because at the end of the day, um, this is a huge tragedy and a yeah. family loss. Yes, it really is. So Daniel was the couple's only child, their only son, and he was due to resume university at Catholic University in Washington. And in a 2018 profile um, in New Jersey Monthly Magazine, Judge Salas said that she thought her son would someday pursue a career in law just like his parents. Um, and then she wrote some, She said something funny. I don't want to dissuade him, but I was pulling for a doctor. Um, <laughs> now, Salas was uh, a judge in Newark, in the, in the district court there that is seated in Newark, New Jersey, and she was nominated by President Barack Obama. She was confirmed in 2011. And prior to that, she was a U.S. magistrate judge in New Jersey. And she had also worked as a public defender for many years before she went to the other side. No public defenders. <laughs> Were you a public defender? I was for many years. Excellent. Excellent. Um, she was uh, born in California to a Cuban immigrant mother and a Mexican father. She spent most of her childhood in Union City, New Jersey, which is very, very Latino. I can tell you that. And um, after helping her family escape a horrible, devastating house fire, she really helped her mother pull together. And and that's where she found her voice as an advocate. Yeah. And, and you know, I think when you step back and you look at the humanity here and the destruction of a family and... You know, this guy who went on this, I mean, he went on a massacre that appears yeah, to have started like in California. Yeah. Yeah. Started in California. That's right. Um, so a lot more. I think we're going to get on this case more information and we're going to follow this one because we still don't know whether he is. He is responsible for this murder in California, but it certainly looks like it. Yeah. And like I said, I really think what's fascinating about this case and what will continue to be interesting as it unfolds is kind of the profile, the full and complete profile that emerges about Den Hollander. Um, I imagine that it will be very, very tragic um, to have led to such perverse behavior. Mike, our next case involves a young millionaire tech CEO who was found decapitated in his New York City apartment on July 14th. 33-year-old Fahim Saleh had started several tech companies, and his latest venture was a motorcycle taxi rideshare company that he had launched in Nigeria, and he had even raised $5 million for this. So he clearly was a guy who had money, he was young, he was smart, and he was making a difference in coming up with all these new concepts. So Soleil was found by a relative who apparently 
interrupted the killer while the killer was cleaning up the crime scene, as we will later find out. Apparently, the killer had just finished chopping up Fahim into body parts, had put the body parts into trash bags, and that's when he got interrupted and he took off. So the medical examiner's office says that Fahim had five stab wounds to the neck, the torso, multiple incision wounds to the arm, multiple wounds to the back, left hand, contusion on the forehead, two lesions on... I mean, he was absolutely stabbed to he death. He was butchered. Yeah. yeah. He was butchered, decapitated, and then, you know, his legs and his arms were cut off at the shoulders and right below the knee. It was gruesome. Uh, and when police entered the apartment, the crime scene, they said that the power saw, the electric saw... The bloody electric saw, which was used to chop him up, was still plugged into the wall. Yeah. Ugh. Okay. So, Soleil lived in um, a $2 million apartment that had tons of security, as you would imagine. Security cameras in the elevators all over the building. And what's really interesting is, you know, and, and they have these in these really fancy buildings in New York where you have your own private elevator that opens up to your apartment and only this elevator goes to your apartment. And that's what he had, which, which we will see is helpful in figuring out who went into the apartment when and, yeah. and how, right? Okay. So the day before his body was found, okay, his body was found on the 14th, but on the 13th, which is a Monday, Surveillance video shows that Soleil is in the elevator going home, and he's followed shortly by a man wearing a mask and black clothes. Let's remind everyone, there is a pandemic in New York. They are in a pretty strict shutdown in New York, so everyone's wearing a mask. So I don't think that that would get anybody's attention, right? Yeah. Um, you know, not during a pandemic. Police immediately suspected Soleil's recently fired personal assistant, Therese Haspel, who's 21 years old. And there's a reason that they suspected him initially. He was fired, Therese was fired by the CEO for embezzling $90,000. Now, to show you um, what a good guy Fahim was, when he discovered that the money was missing and, and he confronted his assistant, he decided not to file a police report but instead said, you know what, let's come up with a repayment plan. You're going to pay me back the money that you stole. In essence, giving him a second chance. Yeah, maybe jail would have been better in this particular circumstance. Um, because even presenting someone like Tyrese Haspel with that sort of an option um, for someone like him might have felt too overwhelming to live up to and may have led to the, the, to Saleh's death. Perhaps had Saleh called the police and had law enforcement intervened and had Haspel gone to jail, that just that traditional route would have almost been better for someone like Tyrese Haspel, where he would have been confined in an institutional setting rather than um, having to sort of figure out or grapple with the idea that he was going to need to pay somebody back that what probably appeared to him to be an insurmountable uh, sum of money. I mean, this is a kid 
whose mother was in a mental institution, whose grandmother died when he was 12 years old, whose aunt kicked him out of the house, who was in the foster care system, who may have had very little options. And then when you, obviously he did something very wrong in stealing the money in the first place. But when you then throw that obligation onto him that he perhaps sees as something that is insurmountable uh, in that kind of desperation, he may have seen uh, killing Saleh as the only way out. And I'm not defending it at all. I'm just uh, trying to explain sort of what perhaps his mindset was where it had Saleh followed the more traditional route, maybe it would have been something that uh, would have been more manageable, even for Haspel. And perhaps have saved Fahim's life. That's, that's exactly right. What's interesting is that Tyrese went to work for Fahim when he was only 16 years old. Apparently, he had won some kind of a competition at his high school because he had developed an extraordinary website. So Fahim may have seen this incredible potential in yeah. Tyrese you know, and could shepherd him. And, and and the tech industry, it's all about young people and young minds and the latest stuff. So, yes. so, so clearly, you know, he took him under his wing and brought him in. The kid didn't go to college. He went straight to work. And Fahim clearly saw potential in him. So I want to go back to the crime, though, um, because this is when, when things start to unravel. So on Monday, on Monday, the former assistant follows the CEO home, okay? So that's Tyrese. Um, when he gets out of the elevator, he fires a taser at his former boss and stuns him. That, that immobilizes him. So Therese, can't, Therese allegedly, he's been charged and, he, he's, and he's entered a plea of not guilty, allegedly stabbed him to death and left him dead in the apartment. Now, about the taser, this is when the criminals are really dumb. He, according to the police, he ordered the taser online, paid for it with his credit card, and when it was delivered, he signed for it. Okay? As I say, flags, red flags, ding, 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 ding. Um, well, then- also, though, it doesn't necessarily, to me, lead to the conclusion that Tyrese was dumb. It led to the conclusion that once again, he became so fixated on committing this crime, on killing his former boss, that he was not at all focused on getting away with it. He was focused perhaps more on accomplishing it. Um, So I, I, I often say that about these sort of ideas when people do things that clearly lead to them getting caught, it may not be a product of stupidity, um, but more a product of, indi- of indifference toward consequence. That's interesting. I'll still call it a dumb move. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> the next morning, Tyrese takes a cab to the Home Depot in Manhattan. Who knew that there was a Home Depot in Manhattan? <laughs> and of course, only in Manhattan do you take a cab to the Home Depot. <laughs> so Tyrese takes a cab to the Home Depot. And there he is caught on surveillance camera buying the saw and the cleaning products that were found in Fahim's home. Now, cops say that the killer went back to the apartment and he was in the process of cleaning up this bloody mess that he had made when the victim's relative. So Fahim's relative is buzzing the intercom to come upstairs because apparently no one has heard from Fahim. They're a little worried. So he realizes this is according to the cops. Um, 
Tyrese, the former assistant, realizes, uh-oh, someone's coming. So he goes out the back door downstairs and he leaves. The relative finds Fahim dead, calls the cops. Now, instead of hiding, we're going back to another dumb move here. Instead of hiding, Tyrese rents a loft and then he is seen hopping in and out of cabs all over Manhattan going on a shopping spree with really expensive shopping bags with a woman who may be his girlfriend, it's unclear, and they're carrying shopping bags from stores like Christian Louboutin, okay, where shoes are $1,000, and that's on sale, <laughs> okay? So, so, I, I just, I want to let you, I mean, it's not like he was doing anything under the radar here. This was very... Again, indifference to consequence. <laughs> yes, can't argue there. Um, so, and then he's seen walking around Manhattan with a bunch of balloons. It, everything's being picked up by cameras and by credit cards. So, um, it, it's, this is my favorite quote. This was in the New York Post, and they attribute this to a law enforcement officer. This guy is the new American psycho, only dumber. Yes. I just thought it was a really good quote. I'm just sharing it. Just sharing it. It, it, it definitely has echoes of American Psycho. That's for sure. And when he was on the shopping spree, when Tyrese was on the shopping spree, the credit card that he was using for the cabs and all the shopping, that credit card belonged to the dead victim, to his former boss. Yeah. Once again, more incriminating evidence against him. So he's finally arrested and he's held without bail and he is charged with second degree murder and he's pleaded not guilty. What I can't figure out is why isn't this first degree? Yeah, that's pretty, pretty difficult. I don't know the laws in New York and exactly how they work. I know that here in California, in order to get a first degree, there would need to be premeditation, but this appears to be premeditated. So it's hard to understand why this wouldn't fall into the first degree category, even more so why it's, there aren't special circumstances. Because in the state of California, in addition to premeditation, if special circumstances apply, it makes the person eligible for the death penalty. And this seems to have some pretty specific details to it that make it look like uh, Tyrese really planned and plotted out this killing of his former boss, and clearly had motive to do so. Tyrese's attorney says, we urge the public to keep an open mind. There is much more to this narrative than the accusations. Well, what can they say? <laughs> there, there, there's really just not a lot to say about this. This is the kind of case that uh, perhaps is the attorney, at least at these early stages, I would uh, make no comment because I simply would want to see how the case develops and what our defense will be. I mean, obviously, there may be a mental health history here. There may be some kind of insanity defense. But that seems very challenging in a case where it seems that he had the forethought to plan and plot out the killing. And then after killing Saleh, Tyrese clearly had the forethought to make decisions about disposing of the body and purchasing a saw to assist him in doing that. And then thirdly, after committing the offense, he doesn't go running and ranting like a crazy man, but instead goes out and enjoys the fruits of his crime. And even though, again, I wouldn't put that in the dumb category, 
I would put that more in sort of the fatalistic category of someone who knows what's going to happen to them, knows that they have limited time of freedom, and is going to go out there and buy some Louboutins, <laughs> but, um, but not necessarily out of stu stupidity, but more out of a, a fatalistic um, understanding of where they're going, which is to prison probably for the rest of his life. But it also doesn't show remorse. So when you're sitting in front That's of a jury, the fact that you showed no remorse, if anything, you were gleeful. Yeah. So as a defense attorney, what you want to focus on there, right, is that the person was psychotic. Because if somebody is psychotic, if somebody is delusional, if somebody has an articulated mental illness, you can use that mental illness to explain a lack of remorse. Okay, perhaps they think they were operating at the direction of a third person. They have unrealistically, illogically, insanely um, uh, fixated on, in this case, Tyrese on Soleil as being some kind of enemy that needed to be disposed of. And if, in fact, you think that you're behaving righteously because you're in the grips of a mental illness, that could explain a lack of remorse. The problem with that defense in this case, as I perceive it, just with li as little we know, is that it looks like he uh, behaved again with such planning um, and uh, premeditation and lack of remorse, a kind of coldness to the conduct, right? And also he's seen with a woman who's clearly with him and also enjoying the fruits of that conduct, who is not saying this guy's crazy, so um, the circumstances here, on the one hand, could lend themselves to an insanity defense because of the gruesome, horrific behavior. You can't imagine a sane person doing that, but also seem to contradict insanity because of the sort of cold and calculated planning of everything. Absolutely. A little bit more on the victim here. So Fahim was born in Saudi Arabia to a family from Bangladesh, but he grew up in suburban New York, and he was one of those teen tech wonders. Uh, the first website that he developed was called Prank Dial in 2010, and it was apparently very popular, and I guess if I were a, a younger person, I'd really be into it. He basically, the website would let users send a recorded prank call and then the site would record the reaction on the other end and send it back to you. Back in the day when I used to do it as a kid, we would just like do it that, live. We didn't, that was we didn't, <laughs> I didn't need software for a prank call. You just needed the rotary dial. Those were the old days. <laughs> Absolutely. But apparently it was a huge hit. So if you're of the right demographic and you were using that, he's the guy who discovered and invented prank dial. And um, here's what I find really endearing about him. When he finally made it big and he was making some money, he bought his parents a house and he bought them a Tesla. And I see wow. this generosity of spirit in the victim, right? In Fahim, yeah. this generosity where he gives back to his parents. And when someone who works for him, who he took a, a risk on and tried to save, does something terrible and makes a mistake, Fahim, instead of calling the cops, gives his apparent killer a second chance and an opportunity to make it right. So clearly, he had this lovely spirit about him. 
And it is just so sad that um, someone he tried to help turned around and looks like he may have killed him. Yeah. And once again, this is, again, similar to the Judge Salas case in that it seems like the who and the why are explained. The who being Tyrese Haspel and the why being in order to avoid the responsibility of stealing from his boss. But again, the profile becomes so interesting to me here in looking at Tyrese's history, the the family history of mental illness, the history of rejection, um, you know, the, the, the death while he was a young boy of his grandmother and then being kicked out of his aunt's house, and also then being given this extraordinary opportunity by this person who seems so good-hearted and uh, really trying to explore uh, what caused him to turn on that person in, in, in again, such a, a, a tragic and brutal way is, is going to be what's interesting about the case, right? Is, is, is sort of like really delving into who Tyrese Haspel is and why did he uh, engage in this kind of brutality? And because I, I, somebody helped him. Uh, yes. And, and yeah. um, but I always, you know, I always care the most about the victims and their families. So yeah. I, I would like to, to end our discussion on thinking about the victim, Fahim Saleh, the good he did, the kindness he showed, and how unfair this was. I completely agree with you. And I think it's, it is best to focus on the victims and their extraordinary accomplishments and the families they leave behind uh, rather than the, the individuals who, who brought that kind of pain on people. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime stories you all are talking about. A Kentucky couple is under house arrest for not abiding by quarantine orders. Okay, Mike, they refused to sign a self-isolation order when one of them tested positive for the coronavirus. Elizabeth Linscott of Radcliffe, Kentucky, told several news outlets that she was tested on July 11th for COVID-19 because she wanted to go ahead and visit her grandparents, so she had to take the test in advance. And then she received the test results, which said that she was positive. So Lynn Scott says that the health department then contacted her through email. They sent her a form to sign that she would check in daily, self-isolate, let officials know if she had to be treated in the hospital if things escalated. But Lynn Scott said that she declined to sign the form and she was told that the case would escalate if she didn't sign the form. Okay, so then on July 16th, this is five days later, Lynn Scott said that she and her husband were placed under house arrest with ankle monitors to make sure that they didn't go out. So before we get to the comments, I would ask you, Mike, criminal defense attorney, civil rights kind of guy, did the government go too far? Not at all. We are in the midst of a horrific health crisis. This is the worst health crisis we've had, certainly in my lifetime and in the last hundred years. And people need to be protected. Someone who tests positive for coronavirus is at risk at spreading that virus to countless other people, unsuspecting people, people who are not necessarily assuming the risk to be around her. So protecting the public at large by isolating that virus 
is incredibly important. And in these circumstances, the government clearly believed, rightfully so, that the only way to isolate the virus in this case was to put the individuals who had been exposed in ankle bracelets and keep them inside their home. Contact tracing is so important um, during these times. And the only way to contact trace with these individuals is to keep them inside their house. Well, do you think that the question is that they didn't want to sign a form, but they may very well have quarantined? Do you think that the issue is about, you know, the government having to sign this form? I'm playing devil's advocate here. Yeah, well, the only way to bind people is to have them sign agreements, right? I mean, that's just, if you ever want to make sure to ensure for yourself that somebody will satisfy an agreement, in this case, not to leave their home and to quarantine, you want that signed document that ensures that they're doing that. If you don't have that signed document and they walk out that door, then what is binding them to, um, to keep them from spreading the virus? So here, I think the government did do the right thing. So here are the comments, and the comments don't necessarily agree with you, Mike. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Kent R. writes, that should be a crime. I would sue the fools who put them on house arrest. Danielle T. writes, I have to agree with her. I would not have signed it either. I would never sign a paper taking away my right to call emergency services. I would agree not to use public transportation, however. Okay. And then George C. writes, this is crazy. And that is not disputed here. <laughs> this, that, that is true. This is, this is crazy. It's all crazy. <laughs> Everything is crazy. And for our comment section, we're staying in Kentucky because apparently there's a lot going on there. This one, though, I have to admit is my favorite. A man who said that he did mushrooms with Jesus is arrested for charging at deputies. An Owensboro man is facing several charges after deputies say they found him naked during a burglary in process. Now, the deputies say that they saw a man inside the home. He was naked, covered in blood and with mud on his body. Authorities say that the man started running at the deputies and they told him to stop and he wouldn't heed their warning they, that he was ignoring their commands. So they tased him and they took him into custody. Deputies say that John Stephanopoulos, 41 years old, kept repeating that he used mushrooms with Jesus and that they were playing a virtual reality game together. Okay, now, if you believe in Jesus, then you know that life is the <laughs> ultimate reality game. Okay, people? <laughs> that, <laughs> that is that not is disputed. True. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Uh, oh, my God. So, clearly, the man is either, he may very well have been doing mushrooms, and that's why he saw Jesus, or I don't know, but um, I don't I don't know that Jesus plays video games. He doesn't need to. <laughs> I don't think Jesus plays video games, but he might have done mushrooms with this guy. We don't know. We have no idea. This person might have truly done mushrooms with Jesus, or maybe he did mushrooms with Jesus. Who knows? There you go. Okay, so Christy A. writes, he is definitely out there on something or severely disturbed in the head. Jennifer L. writes, and he's alive after charging the deputies. S-M-H. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, thank you so much for your insight this week. So glad that you joined us. Where can people find you if they want to follow you and know what you're up to? Well, I am on Facebook and Instagram. I have a very low profile online, to be honest, Anna. 
uh, I, I mostly work under the radar. So if people want to find me, they have to just search my name and they'll find some of my cases and some of the stuff that I've done. And uh, if they need any help, they're free to call. <laughs> Terrific. And you can always find me at Anna G News on all social media platforms. As always, you can find all of our content on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And of course, we post this on YouTube. You can get updates and subscribe to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And as we always say, don't do crime. Don't do crime.